If we were using, at the time, the Queen's flight, invariably the Prince of Wales would pilot the aircraft. Um, what? Pilot. Charles? Well, commercial? Yeah. yeah, you know, occasions being on a flight and the Prince would be up front. A lot of suitcases. I can't lot begin of... to tell you how, oh, many, yeah. how many bags go past you. You've got to make sure that you're covered in every eventuality and aircraft carry blood as well. Blood? Uh, yes, for in case there was blood transfusion as well. That photo didn't just happen. It wasn't, you know, like, maybe we'll walk over here or go over. I mean, that is all choreographed and planned, and nothing is left to chance. Welcome back to the Right Royal Podcast with me, Andrea. And me, Emmy. Where this time we'll be discussing all things Royal Tours. The Royal Tours are a highlight for Royal Watchers from all over the world. Not only do they bring attention to important causes, but they also help cement ties and focus on the UK's relationship with other countries. And then, of course, there's the outfits. We delve into what goes into making a royal tour tick, and believe us, there are a lot of moving parts. It takes some planning, organisation and very talented folks. And joining us is someone who's travelled alongside the royals on almost every continent. Welcome to Hello's Royal Editor and our favourite podcast guest, Emily Nash. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me again. Woo. Welcome, Emily, and tell us why you haven't been to Antarctica yet. <laughs> it's it's on my list. I'm working up to that one. I'm not sure any royals are going there anytime soon, but you never know. Well, you know, Elizabeth Arden should be in your... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not ready for that conversation so ever, Andrea. Swiftly moving on. Emily, you have been on dozens of royal tours over the years. What is the fascination there there is the excitement of being somewhere else being in a foreign country seeing all the traditions and customs that are laid on to welcome members of the royal family but really it's about seeing them interact with different people and I think there's quite a fascination in other countries about the British royal family whether it's you know with the late queen whether it's the historic role of uh, British monarchs you know and Obviously, part of that is down to Britain's historic ties with other countries. Um, but there's so much interest in the young royals as well. And, you know, the children of Charles and Diana. I think that wedding in 1981 was watched by so many people around the world. They are now still fascinated to see their children and their grandchildren. And I've never been on a tour where there hasn't been a huge turnout. When do you get told that there's going to be a royal tour? How much preparation goes on? Like, tell us. We don't get a huge amount of warning. We tend to get a few weeks notice. And, you know, what journalists are like. There are always <laughs> jungle drums buzzing and people know that something's in, the, in, the, in the calendar. <laughs> but um, specifics, you know, there are always rumours on locations and things. But it's never confirmed until a recce is being done by the palace by security and, of course, until the host country is ready to announce it. How do you choose which one to which ones to go to? Well, I mean, ideally, you'd go on all of them, but um, I am needed. <laughs> I am needed <laughs> at home sometimes as well. Look, it, it can be difficult. Sometimes you get quite a few happening in quick succession. Um, you have to think about how it's going to be covered for us, particularly for Hello. Is it going to appeal to our readers? It's not cheap to go on tour. It's a big uh, outlay for journalists to go and, and take part in these events and to cover them. So, you know, it's always a balance of what your readers want and what your viewers want versus how much it's going to cost you. 
Do the readers and viewers kind of want you know you to go to the Caribbean and uh, they are you know, know Hawaii? Selflessly, I will do that <laughs> when required. You know, although as I like to remind my Instagram followers, it is not always as glamorous <laughs> as it appears. It sounds like you've seen a lot of buses over the years. I like Emily. I like to photograph the back of the bus seat in front of me and uh, the luggage pile, the check-in, at, uh, you know, in the early hours of the morning, that kind of thing. Oh, Got to keep it real. The late nights, <laughs> writing it all up. But the less glamorous side is, is yes, the filing on buses and oh. airports and uh, as planes are taking off, that kind of thing. Which one has been your favourite to cover? That is a very difficult question. I was thinking about this earlier. And from my point of view, I just feel incredibly privileged to have gone to some amazing places that I wouldn't otherwise have seen. I think in terms of really unique experiences, maybe walking around the Forbidden City with Prince William in Beijing, um, which had been entirely cleared of tourists for his visit, was just felt quite special. Do you take cheeky selfies? Uh, well, actually, that one was before smartphones were oh. very good indeed. Otherwise, there would have been quite a lot. <laughs> no, I'm afraid, you know, there are a lot of photos of me walking alongside a member of the family with my head in a notebook, um, looking quite serious. That's typical Emily Nash, by the way. You've picked up a few yes. of those. <laughs> and, and again, you know, Africa is a place I've loved visiting with members of the royal family. We were there most recently with uh, Harry and Meghan for their last tour, as it turned out to be, as working members of the royal family. And that was just a really fantastic trip that, you know, the welcome they got... I'm Megan dancing. Megan dancing. Megan's that. speech yes. um, in the township. May I just say that while I'm here with my husband as a member of the royal family, I want you to know that for me, I am here with you as a mother, as a wife, as a woman, as a woman of colour, and as your sister. You know, they were really very, very well received. I think obviously like the, when they came together, all of us were just like, ah, I can't believe this is happening. So yeah, I just think yeah, they're a fantastic couple. And well, I think firstly, like it's the biracial thing that's awesome. You know, it's not just a South African thing, but it's, you know, having a black princess, you know, is amazing. Um, someone who's, who represents us in royalty is amazing. Which royals are the best during tours? That is a that's a very I would like an answer. <laughs> yes. A, a clear a clear concise answer. answer. I I don't think I can single anyone out. Oh. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Um, <laughs> they are all very good at the job, um, which is hugely pressured. And you know, they're out there representing the UK. They're having to meet potentially hundreds of people every day, including world leaders, um, very senior figures, and not getting it wrong in some way must feel incredibly daunting but I think you know certainly I've had a lot of fun um, in the past doing tours with Prince Harry there was one to New Zealand in particular that I remember uh, as being great fun he ended up doing the hacker we ended up doing a a pub quiz against him and his security team who Um, won? well that is a hotly contested debate because according to the pub quiz host he and the cops won um the journalists 
I'm not convinced to this day. <laughs> but you know, we 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 wanted what was the prize? To, we wanted to keep our host sweet. Uh, I don't think there was a prize uh, other just than for fun. other than totally gloating, you know, over yeah, the yeah. other over the other group. But look, you, you do have fun. You do have moments of drama. You have moments of extreme stress. Um, I feel this is a story. <laughs> I mean, I lost my laptop on that tour, oh. which was super stressful. I remember that. Do you? I remember it was like you left it on a flight. I'm, I'm ashamed to say it's happened to me twice <laughs> on a tour. Uh, the one you're thinking of was in Australia. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe it's just me and going to... Uh, Australasia, maybe I just shouldn't go. <laughs> maybe much like the Royals, you could also do with a PA with, you know... I think I could. Look, bringing I, your things we, behind you. We might have to go. Oh, should we And come? record our episode from there. Oh, well, that would be so much fun. <laughs> I carry your laptop for you. I mean, please do. I've, I've been very, very lucky with very kind people helping me to recover items that I may or may not have um, <laughs> left in transit. Talking about dramas, one trip that I wasn't on, and um, which to this day I'm probably grateful for having missed this particular incident was uh, the then Cambridge's tour of Pakistan um, when there was a bit of a close call with landing a plane and in fact they had to overnight um, in Lahore rather than returning to Islamabad. It was very dramatic as Chris Jackson told us when we spoke to him recently. We had a particularly hair-raising moment on a flight in Pakistan. A huge storm came in at the last minute. We're trying to land in Lahore and we're obviously on a schedule, you know, the Royals have engagements the next day. And so it's quite important to them that they can land, land back in Islamabad for the evening engagements. This huge storm, all commercial flights have been diverted and we're trying to land. This storm. It was literally like being in a washing machine. Oh, my God. And, I, oh, and every time we sort of plunge down into the storm. Yeah, I, I mean, that's the only way to describe it. And uh, even some of the most hardened royal travellers were looking very nervous. It was very unfortunate for me because I had a, a, someone behind me who decided to sort of make a video of this moment and put, and put it on social media. And it had my bald patch and me looking very worried. I look out the window just looking. I'm like, hold my knuckles of white. I just, you know, I just don't enjoy I, it. I'm eternally grateful I wasn't on that trip. Apart from you losing several laptops. The same has, one. The same one. Is. I still have it. Has anything else gone wrong? Because there's a lot that can go wrong in these things. Look, I think... Anyone will tell you that the first rule of the world tour is don't miss the bus. If you're a journalist covering it, um, you rely on, the, you know, that people in the local embassy helping you get around these these places that you, you go to. Um, if you miss the bus, you're in a lot of trouble because quite often you'll be going from one hotel to an entirely different city. You might be catching a flight to an entirely different place. You You do really need to sort of be on it. And you're dealing with jet lag. You're dealing with time difference. You're filing and you're trying to report what's going on at the same time and not all fall out with each other on the tour bus. So there's a lot there's a lot of housekeeping it's not going sounding, on behind the scenes. You know, I'm not tempted to go on one of these. It sounds exhausting. <laughs> Do you it think is, I'm not going to lie. It's, it, it, it does take it out of you. But it, at the same time, it's a huge privilege to get to, to travel. And, and for me, the thing I enjoy most is meeting people doing amazing things all around the world. And that's something that the royals are able to put a spotlight on. Well, I was going to say, do you think it's it must be tiring for the royals as well, just with less buses, perhaps? Fewer buses. Um, yeah, look, they obviously they, they get the VIP treatment, but they're under so much scrutiny. Mm. And it just must be exhausting. You're going, you know, they're dealing with the same issues as us in terms of jet lag, time yep. difference, things that need to be 
kept on top of back home. And I think they are able to switch on this amazing charm, however they're feeling. You know, if one of us on the tour wakes up feeling a bit poorly, we can stay in the hotel if necessary and work from there. What if not, you get sick? Guys. Do you have to go to the local hospital? That has do, happened to get, me. Do you <laughs> get happens to me? Do you get treated by the royal doctor? No, oh. no, no, um, no. You're all in it together. It is, yeah. <laughs> but you know, it, it, it and it can be long. You can be away for sort of three weeks at a time, and if you've got family at home, that's challenging, um, especially for my husband. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, as much as it's stressful for everyone involved, I think there's an element of interest that comes from things going wrong and sometimes for members of the royal family they're used to things being presented to them in a perfect way it's the only thing that changes for them when something goes a little bit wrong and it's a bit like Elsa Anderson was telling us when we spoke to her the other week it's often said that the queen and members of the family really enjoy it when things go a bit wrong yeah on engagements yeah is that true is absolutely that something you saw absolutely <laughs> so if you do a plaque unveiling and the curtain would fall off yeah, or the plaque would be unveiled and there was a spelling mistake in it. You know, they would always think, you know, this is yeah. great, you know, <laughs> because they are used to people, you know, striving for perfection. So when, you know, the, the muck hits the fan, they take massive delight in it. I remember, I didn't go on this engagement, but the Queen and, and Prince Philip were in Canada and the Canadians had arranged for them to go on a boat across the ice, across this lake. <laughs> and the boat broke. And they were basically stranded in the middle of this <laughs> lake oh, in the freezing God. cold in Canada until a sort of substitute boat could be could be brought up. And they loved it. You know, it was just... Cause it was they unexpected. basically like to see people panic is what I... <laughs> <laughs> Sweat. <laughs> like. So do you have any... Number one top tip for, for survival. Pe- for survival, <laughs> survival, should you should you be a journalist on a royal tour for the first time? I mean, locate the food and water. I know it sounds very basic, but um, you're on the road for very long hours, and uh, they're not always going to stop for a meal, as we heard from Chris. They are working from the start of the day to the end of the day, talking to people all day, meeting thousands of people. The King and the Queen, they have an incredible commitment to trying to cram in as many engagements as I can. You know, Prince the King doesn't have lunch, mm. so he can bounce from engagement to engagement. Oh, wow. So basically, you're frantic trying to find anything to eat throughout Education. the day. It's very easy to go the whole day. If you go on tour with him, it's quite exhausting. Yeah, if you see food <laughs> yeah. on any engagement, just eat it. Yeah. <laughs> well, Emily, that sounds exhausting. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be chatting to you later. Uh, but in the meantime, we're very excited to be joined by the former press secretary to the Queen, Dickie Arbiter. Yes, Dickie worked with the Queen and the now King Charles as well as the late Princess of Wales for 12 years and joined them on 15 royal tours in that time. We can't wait to hear all about the trips from the man who organised them. Welcome to our podcast, Dickie. It's so nice to have you here with us today. Nice to be here. There's lots, lots that we want to talk to you about, uh, about royal tours. Um, You were a spokesperson for the Queen from 1988 to 2000. That is a lot of time. Tell us how you began to work for the Queen and why it came to an end. I started working for the Queen quite simply because I had a phone call on the eve of my departure for Australia to cover the Queen's Bicentennial Tour, that was in April 88, asking if I'd be interested and if I were approached, would I be interested in joining the press office? And um, I said yes. Had a meeting with uh, then Private Secretary in the yacht in Sydney, all of five minutes. Wow. And the job was mine. And I resigned from where I was, which was in those days LBC News Radio, at the end of May 
carried on working till the end of June and started on the 1st of July, 88, and was there for 12 years. And we followed civil service guidelines. And the civil service guidelines were, you retire at 60. So I retired at 60, took a day off on my birthday, and went back into my roots in broadcasting. And you never had an interview with the Queen? Queen didn't give interviews. I had good conversations with her. One conversation that comes to mind is uh, uh, shortly after I started at the palace, uh, I was invited by the Queen to Balmoral. Private secretary said to me, oh, she wants to meet you. I said, well, I met the Queen several times. She said, no, you haven't worked for her, so off you go. And I arrived there. It was raining cats and dogs. <laughs> Footman said, I'll take you to your room. Can you be here half an hour later because you're going on a picnic with Her Majesty? Oh, my God. And he looked at my face and he said, no, it's okay. You're going to a log cabin. So anyway, cut a long story short. I kicked my heels in the entrance hall. HM walked past. Come on, get in. No sort of hello, welcome or anything like that. I suppose didn't expect it really. And after lunch, HM said, well, we better clear up because she liked to leave things as she found them, spotless. So I thought, well, this is your cue, Arbiter. You're the newbie on the block. So go and start washing up. So I went into the kitchen and I started washing up. And I heard this footfall behind me. I thought, oh, how nice lady in waiting is coming to give me a hand. And I said casually over my shoulder without even turning around, said, okay, I'll wash you dry. Oh. <gasps> And there was this pause, and this very thin voice said, no, I'll wash you dry. So with that, I dried my hands. HM plunged her hands. No rubber ah! gloves. Did the washing up. I did the drying up. Amazing. Um, that was domesticity. Great, great introduction. How was the queen as a pot washer? Did you have to reject any as you <laughs> no, were drying? No, no, no. She was, she was spotless. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so just to reiterate, you uh, worked for the royal family between 1988 to 2000, which is uh, was a very challenging time, a lot of it, for the royal family. How was it working there during that time? Well, it, they, they were challenging times between mm. 88 and 2000. Um, there were already signs when I joined that there were cracks in the marriage between the then Prince of Wales and Diana. Um, and these were very apparent when they'd go on engagement together. You, you could drive a sort of coach and four between the two of them. Oh. Uh, they tried, uh, but they just didn't kind of try hard enough. But the tours were too distracting for reporters to sort of dwell too much on any split in, in the marriage. But there, things did get worse. Um, and there came a time, obviously, at the end of 92, when they had to call a halt. I wish to inform the House that Buckingham Palace are at this moment issuing the following statement. It reads as follows. It is announced from Buckingham Palace that with regret, the Prince and Princess of Wales have decided to separate. Their Royal Highnesses have no plans to divorce and their constitutional positions are unaffected. This decision has been reached amicably and they will both to continue to participate fully in the upbringing of their children. Were you involved in the tour, the Diana and Charles tour of India? I was involved. I did all their tours. I did 15 tours altogether, uh, his, hers and theirs. And they were difficult. We would go out and recce, uh, probably about three months in advance. Sometimes it might be six weeks in advance. A recce team would be a private secretary, press secretary and protection officer, and each with their separate roles, but combining the info so that it went smoothly. I would then go out at least a week before the visit with a protection officer. We'd go over the ground to make sure everything was in place. Very occasionally, it happened in Indonesia. Uh, the president uh, of Indonesia had seen the program and said, Diana cannot go to a leprosy hospital. It is not on, can't do it. But we knew at the same time that the president or Mrs. President, wanted us to go, or Diana, to go to a big theme park that, with her name attached. So it was a trade-off. 
Diana will go to the theme park. It wasn't on the programme originally in the recce. She'll go to the theme park, but she also goes to the leprosy hospital. Mm. It was a no-win for the pre- president. When you were putting together the engagements and, know, and knew that Charles was going to be somewhere else and not the Taj Mahal, did you realise what would happen? Well, like, you know, the focus on the press, her being alone there. Did you ever... Did that ever the thought cross your mind? Oh yes, the thought does cross your mind, Um, otherwise you wouldn't be in the job as a press secretary. You're there as a press secretary stroke PR and you know that the optics are not going to be good. But it was a must that had to be done and we had no option, at least Charles had been there in 1980. Uh, and you, you just sort of firefight your way through. Unfortunately, I wasn't there. I was down in Bangalore and my assistant was up there. But you can't fight the questions that are coming from reporters being shouted by reporters yeah. and Diana answering them. There was a lot to sort of, well, she was sitting on this bench. And if you look at every VIP visit that has taken place <laughs> to the Taj Mahal, they're all photographed from exactly the same place mm. because the Indians do not allow the media onto the Taj Mahal itself. So it's all done from the same place. And there were all sorts of, you know, sort of headlines, wistful, pensive, lonely, you know, you name it, you interpret it. Oh. Um, So we're here, obviously, to talk about royal tours and you clocked many air miles during your time as press secretary. How did you find them? And did you like doing tours? Um, That's a bit like saying, do I like doing the weather? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Look, it was part of the job. Um, and if you if, if you don't like them, I mean, you get a buzz out of them because you're going to somewhere that you've never been before. You're going somewhere that you might not even pay to go to yourself. Uh, it might not be at the top of your must-go-to-see list. So they were interesting. They were fascinating. And you saw things from a privileged position. So they were great fun. They were hard work. For example... If a tour was going to be five days, the recce would be five days. Oh, really? There's no mucking around. There's no sort of downtime, bit of sightseeing. You did. You went from one place to another. You had a sort of program. It would have been approved by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in your host country, who would have then shown it to the, to, to the president after uh, the recce had been done. And the president might say, well, they can do that. They can't do that. I'll give you an example. No, I'll give you an example now. When Diana went to Egypt, there was a program there of the sort of things that Diana was interested in. She was interested in unprivileged children. She was interested in sick children. She was interested in mothers on their own, abused mothers. And when this was shown to the president, he dismantled the whole lot. Oh, Wasn't allowed to do any of that. So we had to scramble around and put things in. So it was largely a visit that involved sightseeing uh, and historic sightseeing, but there were a few things that, that she could do. But, you know, Five-day visit, you'd be on the ground constantly uh, from one end of the day to the next. There was there was no downtime. Uh, you might get downtime about eight or nine o'clock at night because you get back from the day's visit and then you'd start brainstorming of, of how best to handle it. Do you have a favourite tour or a most memorable tour? Are they two different things? One maybe that was just like perfect and one that went terribly wrong. Tours didn't go wrong. <laughs> You've never had a moment where, oh, my God, you've had to cancel things. You've she had wants to, no, the drama, I want the Dickie. drama. I want the no, drama. No, no, okay, okay. <laughs> drama, a drama I can give you. In the, in the last tour that Charles and Diana did together, which was in 92, um, was to South Korea. Now, again, we had wrecked that, and I was on the ground with a, with a protection officer as the plane came in. Uh, it taxied to the disembarkation, door opened, and two people appeared in the doorway and I looked at him and I said, we've lost this one, Mr and Mrs Glum. There were two people standing there who 
probably didn't want to be in South Korea anyway, and certainly didn't want to be together. But it was one that had its problems in that, for some reason, a reporter asked one of the private secretaries, do Charles and Diana have a problem? Without thinking, the private secretary said, well, all marriages go through problems. Now, they were already speculating about a breakdown in the marriage. To have then a private secretary say, Say, you know, every marriage has problems. I was then bombarded with questions. What is the problem with Charles and Diana's marriage? And it's not something that I was prepared to answer because the marriage is private, none of my business. Mm. But it was a difficult one. Did you have a word with that private secretary? I looked at him and I, yeah, but it's not, that's not the sort of thing that you mention on a family podcast. No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Another one, which was quite interesting, we were in Brazil and Charles was in a sort of environmental conference, a small conference. Uh, So Diana had a day off and she went to Foz Iguaçu. Now Foz is waterfalls and is bordering three countries. And it is absolutely spectacular. And at the end of the day, we got back on the aircraft um, and flew to Sao Paulo, which was going to be the next stop. And we hit a rainstorm. And my God, what is it? Was it a rainstorm? We dropped 10,000 feet. The plane just went. Oh, my God. 10,000 feet. And (sighs) Diana laughed. I looked at her and I sort of rolled my eyes because we had the head of royalty protection with us who sort of clung to his seat. And, and as we were going down, he looked out the window and said, it's a long way up, isn't it? Which was a bit daft. But yeah, um, there's the, the, those sorts of things. But 99.9999 times out of 100, the tour went off smoothly. How long, like how long before do you start planning a royal tour? Usually, given good enough notice, you usually go out and recce it about two to three months in advance. It gives time for the private secretary in charge to prepare the programme, to send it upstairs to the principals for their approval. Usually it gets a tick in the box because we know exactly what they want to do and what they won't do. It's forwarded to the British ambassador who then forwards it to the um, Ministry of Foreign Affairs who forwards it up upstairs to their president who ticks the box or questions why we're doing something. And I don't think our foreign office representatives fully understand what a royal visit is all about because a royal visit is all about selling UK PLC. They're not there because they put their hands up because they want to go to a country. They're there because there's been an invitation from the country and the British government want the royal to go there, particularly if it's a senior royal, to sell UK PLC. And the idea is to take a few sort of businessmen with you, not on the same plane, but there, establish a keynote speech, and both sides meet and both sides sign on the dotted line and go away having done business together. And that's what royal visits are all about. You say that they go by invitation and that they think about that it's the right moment, but we've had some kind of controversial tours lately. Uh, William and Kate's Caribbean tour didn't really work, I don't think. The climate is changing. The climate is changing, and that visit did work up to a point, but you've got to look at the, the particular tours to the Caribbean by other members of the royal family were there as part of late Queen's Platinum Jubilee. It was showing the royal flag to the Commonwealth countries, Commonwealth countries that happen to be realm states, uh, where the Queen was head of state in those countries. What happened, say, in one country where there was a football match, 
and oh. there were the kids behind chain yeah. mail fence and the roars were one side and the kids were on the other side. That should have been seen by uh, not just the host country, uh, Ministry of Information, how it presents itself, but also by their press office. The their recce, press office during the recce, yeah. During the recce. That's what recce's are all about. Yeah. It wouldn't have happened on my watch because we would have looked at it and said, no, it's not going to be like that. They're going to be on the pitch. But that was the sort of custom that happened in that country and nobody picked it up and ran with it. Uh, and consequently, it's the principles that get it in the neck. Um, and I, I actually blame... I blame the, the, the country concerned, but I do blame their press team for not having sort of negotiated properly and what? said it either happens with the kids on the field or it doesn't happen at all. Surely the royals know what's been said, what has happened, how bad it looked. But you don't know until you get there. Yeah. You're not told that the kids are going to be behind a chain fence. You're just told that this is what's going to happen. You're going to meet the children, going to be a bit of a walkabout, going to be a bit of a kick around, mm. and then off you go and everybody's happy. Did you have to debrief the royals after royal tours, basically, to tell them how it went in the eyes of the press? And how, how did that used to go? My tours didn't go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I mean, very, very occasionally, um, if something was not quite right, you'd say so at the time, or you'd be asked a question and you deal with it at the time. You didn't wait until the tour was over, until you got back to the UK. So at South Korea, you told them to perk up a little bit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, if it, if it needed it, but you didn't need it. They, both the Prince and Princess of Wales, as were, uh, were very, very good performers, mm. um, and you didn't actually have to worry. Except, having said that, uh, in, in Seville, they went there for the opening of Expo 92, and it was to open the British Pavilion. Uh, which they did, or he did, mm. and then they stood, they, was, they, they sort of had a surround balcony and they stood on the balcony as a sort of photo op. Uh, and, and you could have driven a fleet of double-decker buses be <laughs> between them yeah. because he was looking one way and she was looking the other way. The body language was awful, but, you know, the, the media got their pictures. That's what they wanted. Are the royals good flyers? We've heard Camilla doesn't like flying very much. She's not keen on it, but she knows that she's got to do it because that's part of the job. Um, but the answer is younger royals tend to take private jets, the senior royals don't. If, for example, late Queen went to Australia with the late Prince Philip, then they would either use a Royal Air Force aircraft or the host country, because the Queen is head of state of Australia, they would send one of their Royal Air Force planes. Mm. If a plane wasn't available, then they would go British Airways, paying for it. It wouldn't be given free. And because it's a long flight, the first class section might be turned into bedroom quarters. If we were using, at the time, the Queen's flight, which were 146s, um, invariably the Prince of Wales would pilot the aircraft. Um, what? Yeah, he was a qualified pilot. Charles? Well, commercial? Yes. yes. Oh, my God. Not, he doesn't do it anymore. He used to. But he used to. Prince Philip used to as well. Prince, oh, wow. Prince oh, wow. Charles used to, would fly... Uh, the whirlwind helicopters of the Queen's flight. So, yeah, um, you know, occasions being on a flight and Prince would be up front. Have you ever been flown by? Oh, yeah. The, I don't know how I'd fare. I, I would be like with seat that. on. No, I mean, <laughs> in, invariably what would happen is that the, the, uh, the RAF crew would take off and then he'd go up front. That's oh amazing. God, that's I incredible. That. I, I did not know that. I need to understand what happens inside an airplane. So they are transformed into like bedroom 
bedrooms or it, flying to Australia, which which would be a big commercial airliner. Yeah. That yes, the the front section would be converted into into living quarters, so that the Queen and Prince Philip could get a night's kip. So they would have like different bedrooms, like their own bedroom. They would have like a living room. It would be converted. Because I always wonder how they get ready in the flights. Because they go in wearing an outfit, but then they come out looking incredible with their... Well, there is room on a big aeroplane to do it. And you can use a hairdryer and you can use anything. You Have you use... seen a first-class suite nowadays, No, cl- No, I've, you, I've you can use never it. been there in first-class. There, there was an occasion, we were, we were finishing a golf tour. We'd been to Kuwait, Bahrain, uh, Abu Dhabi and Dubai. And in Dubai, um, Prince was going on to Saudi Arabia solo and Diana was flying back uh, and she was going to pick up the British Airways flight flying out of Hong Kong that would stop in Dubai to fly back to London and over dinner she was told that the flight was going to be delayed five hours to which then Sheikh Hamdan who was the brother of Sheikh Maktoum the ruler said take my jet. Oh my god. So we piled into his uh, 747 and unbelievable Unbelievable. This was the top deck, which is sort of usually the first class section, was a sort of lounge and dining room. And the table came out of the floor. Oh, my. And we had another meal, incidentally, having had a big meal at the Sheikh Maktoun's palace. Um, there were bedrooms. There were showers. And the protection officers asked the, the radio officer, can you contact Heathrow to get hold of Kensington Palace to get a car there? Uh, at Heathrow to pick us up at five o'clock. And he said, you've got a phone, there's a phone there, pick it up, a new phone. My, my jaw's on the floor. That's amazing. It was it was an amazing aircraft. I mean, it was the only clearance for an aircraft then, and we're, t- we're talking about 89, that got clearance to land at five o'clock in the morning. Oh, my God. Did they have, like, a list, like a set list of, right, I like this pillow, I like this type of duvet in the <laughs> like, a, like a rider? No, like in the flight, when they make long flights, you know, they have a request of like, right, I like this, I like that. Not really. This is, no. Not really. Okay. Not really. You know, when when, when some company like British Airways had been doing it for so long, they knew exactly what to do, what was required. I need to, I need to. But it wasn't, it wasn't luxury travel. It was, it was just the means of convenience that the principal arrives. And they have to be ready. They have to, have be, to be ready yeah. to, mm. to, to hit the ground running. And my goodness, it didn't matter who it was. They hit the ground running. Yeah. Um, so we know that obviously you have to pack for every eventuality on a royal tour. Like, d- is that something that you had a hand in? Like, you know, making sure that there was a black outfit in case no, that, there was... That, that, that is standard practice. I mean, when I packed my own suitcase, there would be a black tie in there. Yeah. Really? Oh, yes. You, you, you've got to make... You always think of the worst. <laughs> you've got to make sure that you're covered in every eventuality. And certainly with the principals, like the Queen and Prince Philip, uh, Prince and Princess of Wales, aircraft carry blood as well. Blood? Uh, yes, for in case there was blood transfusion required. No, oh, oh, grief. Never any guarantee that you're going to get the right type of blood <laughs> at your destination, so you carry Just it. pop your blood in your plane with you. Like, oh, my God. Is it true that the royals and their heirs were not allowed to fly with one another? Just in case, you know, in case the plane carried on dropping after the 10,000 feet. There's been a lot of talk about that. Yes, the Queen did make a sort of hard and fast rule that uh, the Prince of Wales and then Prince William of Wales couldn't fly together. Occasionally, exceptions would be made, but invariably, they're not travelling to the same place anyway. I mean, if they were travelling, they might be flying up to Aberdeen to go to Burke Hall or Balmoral. But invariably, no, they would not be flying together. 
that rule is scrapped now, though. That's not really. No, it's 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 still there in place. Uh, it's 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 based on judgment. If there's no other alternative, mm. but to get both people to the same place at the same time, uh, for example, if they're both going, it doesn't happen. But if they were happened to be going to a major funeral, they would travel together. But you would never get that to sort of high-ranking royals travelling to the same place. I have one last question about royal tours that I'm actually very interested in, and it's about food. In long flights, was there a chef? Did this, you know, is it a chef from the palace? Did you rely on external help? Like, what do they eat? We have been told that Charles doesn't do lunch. Oh, yeah, he doesn't do lunch. You all have to skip lunch because Charles doesn't eat lunch either on royal tours. Well... Now, anyways. He, he kind of picked at food. Um, he knew that he'd have to drink because otherwise he'd dehydrate. Mm. Um, and if there was a, a nibble of something, that, it, that he'd have it because you can't go through the whole day. Because certainly when he was at home at Highgrove or Clarence House, he skipped lunch because he's not using a lot of energy. But on tour, you are using a lot of energy. The adrenaline pumps and you've got to... You've got to stoke up the boiler, stoke up the boiler with liquids, stoke up the boiler with solids. But not a lot of time was spent over lunch. It would be usually a snack. And the main meal would be in the evening, there'd be breakfast, yes, fortify yourself for the day, but snack at lunchtime and dinner in the evening. And what about on the planes? Well, planes likewise. The planes would actually supply food. It's there not was... like the food we get, right? The one that you're like, oh, I'll eat it because I'm a bit hungry. But well, the food is very different when you're travelling business or first class <laughs> to when you're travelling. I really again, right. Andrea's lack of first right. class. I am going to create a GoFundMe for our, our listeners. We'll just get this podcast get into... sponsored by British Airways. It's fine. It's fine. But occasionally, occasionally would be, food would be put on the plane, uh, certainly for for the prince, because he has his likes and dislikes. And if, it, quite frankly, if you're flying into Europe, it's a short journey anyway. Mm. Uh, if you're flying Queen's Flight, as was in those days, they know what he likes and what he doesn't like. Uh, and they would stock up the plane accordingly. But if it was a long haul, uh, again, if it was Royal Air Force, they knew what he liked and what he didn't like. So they're, they're pretty good. They're well-versed, well-practiced at it. Thank you so much, Dickie. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been so insightful. Fascinating. Thank you. Wow, royal tours sound intense. I don't think I'll be going on one anytime soon. I do agree with you, although I think I'd like to go at least once, but I'd want to be in Dickie's position. I'd want to be the head of the press secretary. I'd want to be in charge of everything. I'd want to be able to look at the optics and do a recce beforehand. I'll leave that to you, Emmy, I think. I think we should leave it. You can tell it. me all about it when you come back. We should leave it to Dickie. He was... <laughs> he was a great chat. Fantastic. We're already missing him. So, so interesting. <laughs> and we can't wait to have him back on the podcast because he promised he'd come back. Yes. So we have to hold him at his word. Word. But shall we announce our next guest? Yes, go for it. Our next guest is someone who's been an essential part of the royal fashion scene and a must-follow to anyone who wants to get the lowdown on Kate's incredible royal looks, especially her tour outfits. The outfits are a big part of the tours, often making headlines, with plenty of thought going into each and every look. And who better to tell us about it than Susan? Susan E. Kelly is a former journalist and the founder of popular website What Kate Wore and knows everything there is to know about the princess's wardrobe. Welcome to the podcast, Susan. Thanks so much for having me. A pleasure. Now, you've been covering Kate's fashion for many, many years. And before that, you dedicated most of your time to your journalism career. Tell us, what was it about Kate that captured your attention and made you do what you do now? 
my husband and I ran an online retail store and I had a blog that accompanied the store. And anytime I wrote about Kate, the numbers of readers would just skyrocket and the level of engagement would skyrocket. And this went on for a couple months. And I said to him one day, do you know, do you think there'd be enough interest to do a separate site about Kate Middleton and her fashion? And we talked about it and I said, why don't I get a URL? You know, what, what would work? What would work? What's short and snappy? And so we registered what Kate wore. And this was about mm, the time the engagement was announced. And I started writing on the site in 2011 and it just exploded. It's been 11 years since you've been covering Kate's fashion. How have you seen her evolution? I think Kate has more than anything stayed true to her own personal style aesthetic um, that's been refined and I think as we've seen her grow in her roles and become increasingly confident in those roles that she's taken more risks. Um, You know she is someone who, by and large, you'll see in tailored, structured, timeless classic pieces, um, understanding that, you know, photographs are going to be looked at not just next week, but next year, uh, century from now. And, and she wants things, you know, to look appropriate. Susan, you covered many royal tours. What do you think is so special about them? I think there's a couple of things. At the very top of the list would be the sheer volume of styles that you see. Historically on tours, you see an awful lot of engagements packed into a condensed window and you see constant outfit changes. Not always, but you are going to see a greater volume of styles than you would if it were a regular week back in London. For our readers, there's also the element of learning about different countries, different cultures, different people. And they really kind of enjoy reading about, you know, whether it's the national flower or the colors of the flag or what is in style and appropriate in that country. They really get a kick out of that. How much work goes into preparing outfits for the Royal Tour, you think? An immense amount of work. Um, you know, this is an organization that very much understands the power of a photograph or a screen grab or a piece of video. And there are no things left to chance. You know, the reconnaissance begins months before the tour and right down to what the background will look like in a photo, what certain colors will look like against that background, you know, um, We all watch them, for example, walk out on the steps of the Sydney Opera House, that iconic photograph. And she's in that yellow Roxanda dress that William apparently said looked like a banana. (laughs) Um, But that photo didn't just happen. It wasn't, you know, like, maybe we'll walk over here or go over. I mean, that is all choreographed and planned and nothing is left to chance. It's, it's an immense amount of work, you know, and I think obviously the first thing you do is you get her go-to designers on speed dial, you know, the House of McQueen, Jenny Packham, Catherine Walker, Erdem, other designers, you know, are consulted and brought in and the collaboration in terms of what she's going to wear and for what functions, what engagements. 
Do you think there's a number one rule about royal tour fashion? I'm someone who doesn't believe so much in rules. Um, I think there are overarching principles. For example, you know, number one would be be appropriate, be respectful. But I think there are so many other things taken into consideration. You know, um, what would work in this given situation? Um, what would showcase part of the country's culture or part of the country's people? Um, what would expose some of the stuff to readers and viewers who would perhaps not otherwise have a chance to learn about it? So I think it's a blending of wearing things that are appropriate to the instant, um, but also sharing what that country or area has to offer. What do you think is a must for royals to pack for tours? I mean, before the Queen passed away, we always heard that they had to pack a black outfit, but also they have incredible jewels. Um, Is there something that you think is a must? I think backup outfits. I think Emily would remember in Pakistan, I think there was an incident where they could not land in Islamabad where they planned to because of bad weather. And so they had to go back to another city and they ended up doing a second visit to a children's school. Oh, yeah. Well, that's obviously not something that was on the, the itinerary. So how did Kate manage to have something wear that was very appropriate and looked terrific, you know, an extra outfit or two, I think, comes. Um, in terms of, of the jewels and accessories, you know, I always think of them as kind of the punctuation at the end of the sentence, a great opportunity to incorporate a, a local designer's work, um, a great way to perhaps insert a national symbol like you know, the fern in New Zealand, or you think of Kate's hats in Canada with the maple leaf, you know. Um, Sometimes the symbols are, you know, very plain like that, but at other times they're more subtle. Um, You know, I think of a Beulah gown that Kate wore in Bhutan that had a very abstract pattern of poppies woven into the fabric. And the Himalayan poppy is the country's national flower. So it's a little bit of a detective thing sometimes. Yeah. You know, is there significance here or is it just a dress? Air quotes. And and it's, you know, it's never really just a dress. What do you think is Kate's most successful royal tour in terms of fashion? Like which which is the winning looks so over far? The years, so <laughs> far. You know, I would pick the Pakistan trip. Um, because she really she didn't just wear pieces that might have had fabric made in the country but were put together back in the UK she wore local designers and she wore a broad section of designers she she had pieces from zine which is a department store Um, she had pieces by Mahin Khan you know very high-end designers And I think not only did she feel more comfortable wearing the traditional styles, but it sent a message that many of women, in particular in Pakistan, found respectful and they appreciated it. And I had a lot of email and messages from women in that country who were so excited to see their 
culture and their styles being put on that kind of a stage, that kind of a platform. Mm. Um, and of course, it always helps that she looks terrific in them. But it kind of ticked every box. Beautiful colors, beautiful finishing, the casual styles that she wore. I, I think it showed an immense amount of work and thought and sensitivity to things. And it came off as a terrific looking wardrobe for the whole whole tour. And then we had William, of course, wearing a traditional, yeah. which was a big surprise for a lot of people. And that was something he picked out, actually. He picked out that design at a boutique in London um, where Kate had looked at some things. And it was fabric made in Pakistan and it was put together and it looked terrific on him. Um, and, you know, topped off with the Arthur slippers. And I think people just really appreciated him wearing that and taking that risk. You know, I don't think we would have seen William do that. I don't know, 10 years ago. Yeah, he really leveled up on that trip. He looked great. I do have one question, actually. You talking about all these outfits and having Emily here. Emily, do the outfits photograph better than they are in person or are they usually more stunning in person? Because obviously you, out of all of us, you've been there. Put it this way. When I get off one of these planes on a tour, I look like someone has scrunched me up and put me in their back pocket. And obviously they have a bit more help than the rest of us, um, but they always look immaculate. Um, I've never seen, you know, an item of clothing out of place. It's, it's actually quite extraordinary to see. But do you get the same, like when we see the photos, we're like, you know, for example, I mean, I mean, I can I think of one now, Kate, at the James Bond premiere. Mm. Was that one that he, she wore the... The, the gold yeah. Jenny so dress. when you see that in person, is it just as good as seeing it in a photo? Or do you then see a photo and you're like, oh, wow, okay, that really photographs well. I think what what is, um, I mean, the photographs obviously capture a particular yeah. moment. When you see someone moving in these, yeah. or when you Ooh, see, yeah. I'm thinking particularly um, back to Jamaica uh, earlier last year and I think it was Jamaica we were at an airport and it was very windy and she was uh, Susan will help me out here she was wearing yellow it might have been the Roxander dress again getting a rewear I think it was and I remember feeling a little bit worried about her hem <laughs> because it was uh -huh. extremely windy but the the dress was so beautiful and it just looked so fluid um, in, in so I, I guess you know the, the very long-winded way to answer your question is to say I think they look even better in real life. Amazing. Now, in the tours, we've also seen the kids. Um, what have you thought about their fashion? You know, I think they're so delightful and everybody's always so happy to see them. You see them in traditional British heritage brands like Rachel Riley or Trotters or Start Right Shoes. But you also see Kate's incorporation of a broad section of Spanish brands, which she has found works for her um, and for the children. So it's been a very interesting mix. And the majority of things have been very kind of middle price point. This is not, you know, little Gucci or Dolce & Gabbana for girls or boys. This has been kind of, you know, you could run around in a check shirt and shorts and it's what they would wear. 
I think the color coordination is always fun to see. Yes. Um, because it does. It's so cheesy. It's, I love it. <laughs> yeah. It, it, and I do that too with my kids so I can say it's cheesy. <laughs> it, yeah, it, you always see it, you know, whether they're on the tarmac at the airport in Berlin or Poland. I, you know, there's just this kind of this sea of blue, these soothing, appealing, attractive blue shades. You you clearly, you know, you still do every outfit of Kate. Do you have a memorable one that's just, do you remember going wild, everyone going wild for it or many sales or? One of the most memorable ones really was the white BAFTA gown. Oh. That just kind of stopped people in their tracks. Um, and that's on, I have a little list of iconic looks on the website. And that one is on the list. Um, I think in terms of popularity and what people have purchased, an awful lot of, you know, um, me and M. Oh, yeah. Boat shirts. Which Camilla also loves. Yes. And some really wild pieces and brura. Um, or you see handbags that are reasonably priced, yeah. uh, that people can afford, um, or earrings in particular. Mm. She um, has a good collection of, uh, I was going to say cheap, maybe cheap's not the word. Um, cost-effective. Yeah, cost-effective. High uh, street. High street. street, that's the word. High street ear- earrings. She's really good at that. And and people do like that. You know, sometimes we'll see pushback from readers saying, why didn't she wear you know, the diamond and pearl, whatever. And there was a great um, deal of discussion about the earrings worn, the pair from chalk that she wore for the second time, the geometric kind of, and some people thought that was great because that matched the architectural feel of what she was wearing. Other people thought that was a big no, and it should have been a time to put on a pair of the diamond pearl you know, not in your face necessarily, but dressier than a 78-pound <laughs> pair of earrings. Well, I, I, um, I'm a big fan of Kate's style. And I think I really love tours. You know, it's so interesting to see, you know, how they pay tribute to flags, how they, they clearly do a lot of research. And I guess they take inspiration from past tours, you know, the ones that the Queen did at the time. And because, you know, we've been comparing, for example... Kate in some tours, we've compared her to Diana. We've compared her, you know, to the late Queen. So there's clearly a lot of lot of work that goes on. A lot of thought. A lot, a lot of suuitcases. I can't a lot even begin of... to tell you how, oh, many, yeah. how many bags <laughs> go past you on the. It yeah. must be very stressful to like. I would not want to be pack. responsible for that. I would not want to be responsible for carrying around the suit bags either. I think the pressure of, of leaving one of those behind somewhere. And we've also seen mistakes happen on royal tours. I remember um, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex's first tour in Australia where... Oh, in the, in the South Pacific. In yeah, Tonga. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah, when she was photographed with a tag coming out. Yeah, that, oh. was, very, that was really unfortunate. Oh, that's that right. That was yeah. very unfortunate. So much work and for the headlines to be... Because, I mean, it is what it is. And it was a great dress. It was it a was shame. A great it was a real shame. It was a gorgeous that dress. Yeah. Was it self-portrait? Uh, I think it was self-portrait. It was bright red, <laughs> if I yes, remember yes. rightly. Yeah. Aww. Susan, it's been great chatting to you. Thank you so, thank so you much. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Wow, she has an amazing memory. I, I, I can't believe she can recall what Kate wore to what, everything. Yeah, what colour she wore to any event. I'm, I'm, I'm gobsmacked. 
It's very, very impressive. But I don't know about you, but I'm a little tored out. I'm, I'm tored out. I, I think I've got jet lag. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I imagine how royals feel and Emily feels when they're on these tours. So that's everything from us today. Thank you so much to all of our guests and to you two for joining us. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks. So don't forget to subscribe now. In the meantime, catch more from Hello with our news and entertainment show, The Daily Lowdown, available on Spotify, Apple and wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. Bye.